Welcome to another episode of KC Caffeine. My name is Jason. Today, Blue will not be here with us. She's got some prior engagements. Thank you, Todd. <laughs> according, that's according to Merriam-Webster. It's diaspora? That's what it says. All right, cool. So Feeling we're going to call good. it that. Good start for note, me today. Again, thank you for calling. <laughs> thank you for calling. Jesus. Thanks for calling. Welcome to another episode of KC Caffeine. My name is Jason. But obviously, they're the colonizers. Well, you know, they are the colonizers. Here on KC Caffeine, me. we explore what it feels like. Syrian. They're just talking right over me like I'm not even here. I'm waiting to get your intro done. I'm like, come on, like, give me some space. I just want to get the intro done. We're doing a meta thing for what we're leading up into. It works so perfectly. I mean, You should just make an intro and then like place it over it and then you'll hear all the, you know, on the background. It's like, because because these, these random white men are talking over me. Wow, what a metaphor. It's a meta, meta answer for what you're about it's, to ask. It's a part of our culture. It is. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of KC Caffeine. My name is Jason. First off, uh, he was not here last time, last week, but he came back to grace us with his presence. Uh, Gabe, how are you? Oh, hello. I'm good. I'm very well. I'm a little rain-soaked. Rained? Rainy? It's a little wet outside. I'm, I'm a little moist. I don't know why people hate the word moist. I think it's a fine word. It's, it's the way that I feel about clutch. I hate that word. Clutch? I hate the it. The meaning or the word? The word. What? I just think the word itself sounds... A fit, it sounds profane. It's like it's like, like, like claws it's, coming at you. So like it just sounds like it's dirty. So what do you call a nest of baby bunnies? A nest of baby bunnies. I've never had the occasion to refer to one, but <laughs> I mean, it's, more, it's a more actual would be like asking you, know, what would you call a purse that's not a purse? A clutch, yeah. which still sounds, you know, dirty, dirty and profane. Mm-hmm. And on that note, speaking of the dirty and the profane. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> our, we have Todd. Hi, Todd. Hi, Jason. How are you? I was going to come up with something nice to say, but dirty and profane just seems like it works. It works. Our resident does. nest of baby bunnies, Todd. That's right. <laughs> I'm clutch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and back again. It's been a while. He is a friend of the show, a friend of mine. Uh, he has his own podcast that is out here doing great things. Again, we have Spencer. Hey, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. So I, the reason that I gathered you all here today, this conclave of white people, <laughs> is I wanted to discuss what is uh, white culture, uh, and I wanted to, to have this conversation just because a couple of things happened on the internet's, uh, my own personal internet's this week that made me ask that question, and I figured who better to ask than straight white men and. Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guy's kind of the game. I was wondering I mean, where that was going, but yeah. I, I see it. Then, uh, <laughs> uh, as far as, as what white culture means to you guys, uh, and then maybe we kind of have that discussion. I don't have a lot to say about this because I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. And I'm, as I'm sure that other many of my other li- listeners are willing to learn as well, what do you guys think that white culture is? I will let one of you lead the discussion. Who's got okay. it? Who's got it? Who's got it? Gabe's got it. As I was as I was thinking about this at lunch yesterday, one of the first, and I'm going to jump right into kind of the imagery that I have of it, because I've got like the long-winded, super leftist academic background to draw on, but jumping right into the imagery of it, I think of white culture as that moment in the Heath Ledger Batman movie when they're on the two boats, and they both have detonators, like spoiler alert, I guess. They both have detonators, and one is a prison ship. And then the other is like a commercial little fairy thing. 
and then somebody put explosives on both ships and then each of them has a detonator to the other one and it's like a mind game to say who's gonna crack first and you know in the movie nobody does it and it's this hopeful moment and like maybe there's hope for the world and that's great and i would suggest white culture is that guy who wants to go push the button not just who wants to go push the button but the psyche that the rationale that goes through his head that says we should do it first or we ought to or we deserve to or this is justified or this is okay so i'm gonna open up a little negative and just say the the underlying themes of white culture when i think about it it's this we deserve and it's this kind of we first thing and so i'm gonna go deep into like fundamental like motivations of white culture not like <clears throat> this is the music that we made or this is the food where i think where this originated right but i think it's that rationale and that justification and and that story that you tell yourself to make what you're about to do necessary and i don't say that in a flattering way i I don't know i've been thinking about it for a few days since jason said this was gonna be the topic and and i honestly i i couldn't define white culture for you I, i mean for me i don't feel like i draw on any white culture it's more just my family's history and traditions which are probably mostly eastern european because that's where my family came from in the 1870s in maryland you know it was mostly british german um you know so we had christmas trees but i I just i don't and maybe that's because there are so many other white people out there that i just don't identify with that i don't see us as i I don't see like a i think outside of your personal traditions you don't see one that's out there no i don't i don't i mean a few group and and i think part of that was informed by where i grew up because where i grew up you had 10 to 12 percent of the like the high school population was black um and then you had a, a probably six to eight percent of the high school population was was latino um and then the rest it, it was fairly white dominated obviously other than that like four every five kids were probably white kids but it was very cliquish um you know you had i actually had more trouble with like like the, the cowboy like country sect like those were the guys more likely to jump me after school um the guys that were you know, flying a Confederate flag and jamming out to Dwight Yoakam or whoever was popular back <laughs> in the And you wouldn't say that's a type of white culture? I, I would say that's part of, yeah, that's, but that's not a part of white culture I've ever identified with. So I don't, con- I don't consider that. I mean, yes, it's white culture, but, but, yeah. but it's not a part of, for me, I've just never. One of the things that I put on my list, and I think you're, it's a similar idea, is white culture is that moment when somebody says it must not be because it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> well, but I'm, but no, I mean, I think it comes down to, I, th- I think it's tied in with privilege in the fact that because I was always part of the majority, I didn't feel like I had to be defined by my race necessarily. And I think that for people who aren't part of the majority, they understand that the first thing people see and define them as oftentimes, whether it's real or perceived the way, you know, they often feel like I'm always going to be defined as a black guy, or I'm always going to be defined as a Latino. And so I think that cements the idea of what it is to be black, what it is to be Latino, what it is to be, you know, increasingly, you know, in the last 20 years, what it is to be gay, because I think there's a, you know, the LGBTQ culture, um, I think that exists to a degree, but I never felt like I had to be pigeonholed as a white guy, you know, to any particular, I didn't feel like I had to listen to country music. If, if I wanted to be an appropriator and listen and, you know, and, and like, but, but I mean, I, I grew up, I played basketball with a, with a, you know, I mean, a lot of my friends were, you know, were black guys on the basketball team and stuff like that. You know, I didn't feel like I had, I didn't feel like there was a box that you could put me in and say, this is white culture here, go in your box. Okay. What about you, Spencer? I'm going to kind of follow what Gabe is talking about here. I'm not going to try to go back and go with a historical perspective because I don't think it entirely applies. But what I would call it basically now is, uh, and it's because through my own experience, I've watched as the majority of people that I've known who are white will, I mean, not 
most of my friends, but people that I you know went to school with, you know, some some people that I work with, others. Uh, there's a very hardcore embrace of kitschy phrases and symbolism, uh, some jingoism as well, but there's no deep-seated substance. Basically, it's, oh yeah, you know, we're all, we're all in this together and everything else, but then if something real, you know, divisive comes up or a crisis comes up or something else and there's an opportunity that if you could stop on somebody else, you get ahead, they will turn on you very quickly and it's, you know, fuck you, I got mine. Okay. And, um, and that's that's exactly where a lot of my <laughs> themes came yeah. from. I, I, I don't know if... Again, I, yeah. to play to I what guess, you're saying. I, and I guess... I, I, guess hope, kind of, I hope I don't do that, but I think that's a part of white culture, and I think that's something that like I, I try I, to be continuously mindful of and value not doing, but it's something that I think requires conscious effort because I think white culture has allowed allowed me to let that be a choice. I mean, kind of extending off what you said about, about it being we deserve kind of an entitlement mentality, I think it's also a mentality of superiority. I, I, I've seen a lot of these lately from some of my more conservative friends about posting wistful pictures of a farmer watching a sunset with his white children and his little dog saying, I, you know, I long for the America when I grew up. And, and who just got nailed for this with Justin Timberlake's last album. Somebody was, Oh God. And they just nailed him. Exactly. Yeah, for that. But it I, I remember it was this, it was this like phony air of superiority. Right. And, and I called him on it. I was, I was, the, the dude was born in 1954. And I was like, you long for an era of political assassination, oh, social the Cold war, you know, with a, I'm like, so the Vietnam era, like you define greatness as the Vietnam era, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, rampant political assassinations um, by dark forces. I was, and I, I was like, that, what is it that was so I think that great? brings up, especially the cowboy notion and the Justin Timberlake imagery and that kind of stuff. I think that brings up two other things um, that how whiteness, and I still want to come in and break that down a little bit because I think there's a lot of emotion attached to that word. Like when we talked about. Do yeah, I'm people, getting, I'm like. Uh, and I'm here, and I'm here for the emotions, and I want to talk about it. But I think that's necessarily tied to other things like masculinity and heteronormativity over here, as well as consumerism. And I think especially consumerism is going to be where we find this the deep answer to the oxtails that we're looking for. <laughs> I, 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 I was think, so mad about those oxtails. No <laughs> I, I, I also want to say um, both of you brought points that I actually I've written about this I I sometimes just keep notes and sometimes random thoughts will come into my head and some yeah there you go and I just put them down like I gotta write this down Mm -hmm. Um, some of them are not really that great like there's a reason why wine stoppers look like butt plugs but others are (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) sorry I'm sorry that Rewind. Was, <laughs> it, it just popped into my head because I was at this place and I saw they were selling wine stoppers. I'm like, those look like butt plugs. Why am I thinking they look like butt plugs? I don't know. Maybe there's got to be a reason why. I'm sure there is. Because it One plugs the... Keeps, no, way. I guess we're not here. Hush, we're not doing this. I want to have It goes way far deep. But what I'm it, saying is it that... Sounds I, like, it sounds like both products are designed effectively. There you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that works. Sure. <laughs> but one of the things that you brought, that gave you brought was, um, I remember writing this down, it was how bad something is for humanity is directly proportional to how bad it is to him personally. So if it affects them personally, then it's bad for humanity. But if it doesn't, frame, then it's... Wait, frame that idea a little... Where did that... How is that idea related to what... You were talking about the, you know... Are you saying the, that's an element of the, whiteness? Uh, we, you know, that there's an era of we deserve this stuff, so it's like, well, I'm getting what I'm supposed to be getting. So if it's bad for me, then it's bad for everyone else. But if it's not bad for me, then it's right. not bad for anyone and, else. 
And something you brought up, which was uh, about the, the guy who longed for the 1950s, this has been going on for a long time. It's nostalgia for an age that never existed. Correct, yeah. You study back in history, it's like, no, this isn't, the, your ideal is based on a, a fantasy. And the fact that there are people who haven't lived that history or lived exactly what was going on, only can read through history, they can't challenge you on it because there's no possible way. Your memory is not tied to actual reality, it's tied to old magazines and TV shows. That's another place directly where I was going was there's this element of city on the hill that you're constantly deserving of it. That's constantly going to be this paradise that you can get to. And there's just this, not that, you know, every culture doesn't have the notion of a city on the hill, but I think one specifically within whiteness and mental note for us to come back and break down what that word means a little bit more in fragment. But I think specifically within whiteness, there's this element of city on the hill of there's this paradise and we just need to get back to it. And what I think that's code for is we slash I as an individual slash I as whatever my peoples are geographically or racially or your gender or sex or whatever. I have a question. About I that, need to actually. be the focus. And you talk about the city on the hill. How much would that be affected by religious institutions? In my personal opinion, <laughs> I mean, no, I'm getting in, sorry. We're hitting some waters, y'all. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean, cult, religion does shape cultures, right? And I'm wondering because because you bring that up about the city on the hill, and you know, we're destined for something. It remind it brought some religious here's, imagery in my head. Here's so. my attitude towards the way that religion plays into that for Western whiteness. Keeping in mind that when I say whiteness, I'm not talking about any given white person and I think that's what we white people love to do is exactly what you said if this doesn't apply to me then it must not be true like and I think we do the same thing with um, markets generally speaking or with presidential terms like if I had a good four years because I just got a new job and I got in a good relationship and I got a new car yeah the president must have been great for these four years so I think it's this kind of false equivocation that my personal experiences are the standard to which others and the world should be judged Um, taking a step back for the religion piece and where because I was thinking about this all. I'm, I'm in your. I'm feeling you. I'm on your wavelength. Um, where I think religion is playing into this Western whiteness, American whiteness, is I think a lot of America's history and really white history is about power structures and about maintaining those power structures. And I think the way that I'm going to go straight to Christianity. I think the way that Christianity is framed in Western in America's history is it's kind of morphed to be whatever is the most self-serving for the individual. And I think it's really become kind of subservient to consumerism. And I think people treat, uh, I think Westerners and specifically Americans and specifically white Americans treat religion as it should be something that suits me and can be tailored to me. And it should require as little effort to me of as possible and it becomes like this commodity that we consume and and I'm going to share my opinion and I think that's where a lot of nope I don't I won't share that opinion because <laughs> I, but but that's where I think that's <laughs> like, gotcha. and, um that I think it's convenient I think it's real convenient and I'm not saying that people don't take meaning out of it and I'm not saying that it's not genuine so I don't want to say that but I think it's a path of least resistance in a lot of cases. I, I would submit that it is disingenuous in a lot of cases. Um, I quite honestly, when I hear supposedly predominantly white conservative Christians start espousing quote Christian values, it's clear that they've not actually read the Bible and don't actually understand the text um, and have not taken the time to study and actually be educated yeah. on. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's pretty safe to say. It's actually. just <laughs> it's just a label that they throw on because it's because like you, it's it convenient. Suits their agenda, and it suits uh, it's what they convenient. Want the it's what they've be. been historically. They don't have an actual understanding of, of what it should mean to be Christian, and, and so I would say that it is disingenuous. I mean, half the time I see people, you know, say 
what would Jesus do? I'm like, you don't have the first clue what Jesus would do because you didn't understand what the man's teachings were all about. I mean, okay. it, it's really simple. Like, it, I mean, to me, I grew up in the church. And I'm not very active in religion anymore. And one of the fundamental problems I had is that the whole damn book, the whole damn, like the, the Old Testament, by the way, if you believe in eye for an eye and you're, and you're really into Old Testament and stuff like that and, and you're all about all that kind of stuff and you, and you ignored the part where there was a new covenant with Jesus and his one commandment above everything else was love other people. That's pretty much, I mean, that's that's the essence of the Bible. If you want me to distill down what Christianity should be in a sentence, it's love other people. But everybody conveniently likes to cherry pick the Old Testament and the extreme irony to me when I hear people do it, especially if they've got a Confederate flag on their background, is, son, you're Jewish. You... <laughs> You are Jewish if you are if you are relying solely point. on the Old Testament, <laughs> which is extremely ironic because if they found out that they were Jewish, they would probably have a problem with themselves because they probably blame the Jews for their economic situation. So it's I just look. I think I fell into a moment of like I don't you know what I've heard Jason say the phrase "Don't be someone who takes things away from people," and I was like I like that, and I I felt that and now that you broke that out here, I was like. No, I think that's something that could be taken away from people. <laughs> no, I, I mean, look, it, it's it's phony. I, I and, and that's the reason I fell away from the church, because because it is disingenuous and, and because... It, it creates a power And look, structure. I'm not saying there, there are very good pastors out there. And I have friends who have actually studied the Bible and are deeply religious and believe this. And one friend in particular I'm thinking of, shout out to my boy Kevin if he happens to listen, but he has the most amazing faith and grace in his life, and it is inspired by his study of the Bible and, and his devotion to that text. And when he speaks, I listen, because I know where he comes from, and, and, and it's a place of goodness, and, and, and I know that he's put in the work to understand the things that he talks about, you know, but... There's a lot of other people. I know a lot of people that I used to hang out with at bars and different places like that, who if you ask them how they identify, would say they're Christian. And I would say that 80% of the things that they do are in no way reflective of what Christian values should be. Well, Jason, over that can of worms, what's your next question? Yeah, wow, that was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> well, what are, you, you asked that question, so did you have thoughts on it too? I, I mean, I think that it plays into uh, a lot of the, you know, go, you're going for symbolism and kitschy phrases and all that line rather than actual deep-seated convictions that require serious thought. And that just seems to play out on so many different levels. So it's basically it's something I've seen a, a lot of and there seems to also be a bit of a rift from people who are like, this isn't genuine, but then also we question ourselves of, well, are we actually genuine? If we can find that fakeness in someone else, where is it in our own lives? And that can be difficult to really determine. That was a really good start, guys. There's a lot there. Um, there was a lot there to unpack. And uh, I don't think any of us are like sitting so going, yeah, I'm proud of being white. Nobody, well, and nobody the thing here. is, is I, and, and, and that was actually going to bring me to my second question is, you know, you've seen those kind of memes out there that's like, you know, black pride is okay, you know, Hispanic pride is okay, why is white pride not okay? And I've always been of the mindset that the reason that white pride is not okay, and I use quotes on that, is because of what that represents and what that means. Black pride and Latino pride and Hispanic pride and Irish pride, all of those things are things that have not necessarily been on the backs of another person or on the backs of other people. You know, black pride isn't saying that right. I'm better than you, you know, because of my blackness. It's I'm celebrating this part of myself. Right. And I think it's it's fine to say I'm celebrating the white portion of myself. Well, okay, I 
race is absolutely a factor in it. No, no one gets upset at Irish pride on right. on March fourteenth every year because they look like us, and obviously they're a historically marginalized group. Um, you know, if you know your history about when you know when the Irish started coming over here, you know, and they were put in ghettos and they were treated very poorly, and there were signs up Irish not welcome here. There were Jim Crow laws for Irish people before we call them Jim Crow laws in the South. So, right. but we don't we don't have a problem when people. Or Italian Americans or Irish Americans who you know who who had those type of histories and they, they don't have a problem with celebrating that. It's when somebody else is other that all of a sudden it becomes a problem. It takes more work to pick and, them out of a crowd. Correct. And what I would say is that I don't know anybody who's ever woken up every day, looked in the mirror, and been ashamed to be white. Right. Um, that's just not a thing I've ever heard of. I mean, I'm sure that you can cherry pick and find the one guy out there, you know, who's like. You know, so insane that like he's just like, oh my god, I'm just you know, like you know, I have plantation owner blood, and I'm just the worst person ever. But I can think of one person. But we're gonna well, but I, I mean, yeah, look, I was... <laughs> look there, there are there are outliers for everything, sure, but, right, but sure. by and large, I don't think there are people waking up ashamed of their whiteness. So you're kind of by default, you know, if you're if not proud, you're ambivalent toward your whiteness. Whereas other communities have been made to feel ashamed. Right. Of being black have made to be feel ashamed of being, and that's why I think it's okay for them to take a moment to, as a group, to celebrate b- taking pride in the fact that look who we are, look how far we've come. Let's continue to fight the good fight. Exactly that, they and had that's to fight for it. correct. And that's white people have, uh, uh, like I said, we're there Ir- by default. <laughs> Irish people have had to fight for it. Italian Americans, there are subsects that have had to. We are fine celebrating those. We're fine celebrating Irish culture. You know, we're fine like glorifying mob culture and stuff like that. Um, you know, I mean, well, and we're fine, like, eating pizza and cannolis and, you know, talking about how great Italian food is. And there's no there's no shame associated with any of that. Um, there is, however, shame associated with other minority groups. And that's why I, I personally don't mind it. But, look, it's just, it, it goes back to entitlement, I think. And, and you know, people feeling like people if, are, if, if yeah. we're celebrating your pride, that means we're denigrating mine. Right. When it's not, you know, it's not. Uh, People are so used It's not to an not. equal sum game here. Yeah, that exactly. Yeah. I think. Uh, um, I, th- I think that exactly. The transition from like being so normal that you don't have to stop to think about your own identity, quote unquote normal, being told that you're so normal and default that you don't have to think about your own identity. Like that's like a narrative. That's a made up thing that's a story that people tell and it's just kind of everywhere and it's in you see it in movies and you see it in how, history books right right and so it's just that that kind of normalization something that comes from that is never having to think about it i think that's a key component to it and so when other people want to step forward and say i deserve to be here i deserve to have move, be center stage in movies i deserve to have my kids be able to see people that look like them in movies and books and everything that takes the shift away from exactly like you were saying so now people who are have been told that you don't have to ever give effort or thought to others now have to stop and consciously look at why do other people want to step forward and so it kind of threatens that whole comfort is really what i think that is well yeah i mean you look at i i think back to like my world history classes in high school and stuff like that and it was all relative to i mean we might investigate vietnam a little bit but it was all relative to you know french british or u.s involvement there you know we never studied you know vietnam outside of the context of we never looked at our ugly moments well, well, we and also, there's a lot of them. Well, we also never looked at 
what was going on there, you know, a thousand years before we had a war going on there. You know, I mean, I, I can't tell you, you know, one time that we, you know, I, I can't tell you one thing that I ever learned about South American history uh, in a quote world history class. It was all absolutely Eurocentric, you know, and, and predominantly, predominantly British. I mean, it was and, and that that's what passed for for history, um, right. you know, at least at the high school level. That's what we're taught. And so. I think, you know, I mean, if you want to talk, if, if you're talking about white coal, I, I think that is part of it, too, is the educational system that we're brought up in, you know, as part of these other systems. And that, you know, we're, we're not ever taught to give a damn about anyone else. I mean, it, we act as if, you know, the history of black people started with when slaves were brought to this country, you know, or something like that. And, and obviously that's that's simply not true, but that's how we've taught it for generations upon generations in this country, you know? And so I, in some ways, I don't think it's a surprise that um, we've seen this this pushback from, from people who now feel disenfranchised because right. they have this narrative in their mind that white people and white people alone created the greatness that is America, you know, over 200 years. And and obviously, it's a bullshit narrative, but it's it, nonetheless, it's the narrative that these people, and a lot of them are the same ones who claim to be Christian, have never read the Bible, which is also, don't understand. Yeah. So they it's, just... It, well, really, it boils down to is a, a domination, a sociocultural and economic domination to the point where we, we will dominate how you trade, we will dominate how you exist these are the these are the defaults uh gave you brought normalcy and that's what it was the domination of well this is normal what you're doing is not normal it wasn't about focusing on it was not probably this is the white thing to do even though right. it, that is what was going on but it was framed and marketed very differently that wasn't just in schools it was also outside the schools it was implicit in marketing campaigns in storefronts in the way things were going and the disenfranchisement uh I think, honestly, from what I've seen has been going on for a very long time. But it's that express domination of we will control everything has caused that to be a problem. And that's why whenever, I mean, at least I hear you know the whole white pride thing, I'm like, I don't ever feel the need to celebrate that. I, I have a history. I know what it's about. And to be honest with the way I've grown up, um, excusing my family and what they taught, everywhere else I went, it was always celebrated. Every day was a white pride holiday. You go to the stores, what do you see? All the mannequins are white. What do you see when you go to school? All the reading materials have white people in the textbooks. Mm -hmm. What do you see when you go other places? It always, it was not just... Watch television. Yeah, when you watch television, when you watch movies. I mean, the whole thing with someone's like, well, where's going to be the white pride day? I'm like, it's every damn day. It's like you already get that. You just there's no there's no explicit way out there until you see a bunch of guys who are standing out there in khakis and white polo shirts uh, because they just apparently can't dominate enough and they want to dominate every single portion of the country in that regard. It can't just be we have control over this. It's also we have to control the narrative and how everyone talks, how everyone expresses themselves, how how you live your life. You know, the things you do, if you don't live in this style of home or you don't work for this pay or these certain jobs, I mean, it's so pervasive because that's how it survives. And so when I hear about that, like, why don't you, you can celebrate, as, as, as you said, you know, you can celebrate, you know, Irish pride or Italian pride, but you start focusing on white pride and that's also a whole just complete, you know, this is a dominating thing. 
it doesn't allow other Never mind that, like, neo-Nazis chant the phrase. That's definitely Philosophically, true. Philosophically, oh, yeah, yeah. the idea is <laughs> yeah. just unnecessary, and it's it's been built into our history. It is a lot of our, our American history trying to pose itself as the norm, and that's, like, the most insidious, dangerous. There's a follow-up to that. I read in a book that one of the, in the social contract that is America, one of the things that people who, when they came from... You know, Ellis Island and, you know, these other immigrant countries, uh, especially if you were fair skinned, one of the things you had to do was kind of give up your cultural identity for this thing called whiteness. You know, you when you before you left, when you left your own country, you might have been Hungarian or you might have been Bolivian or, you know, Spanish or and I mean, like mainland country Spain, not, you know, Hispanic. You know, any of these, you know, what we consider to be immigrant countries, Eastern European, when you came here you kind of cast all of that stuff off and became white. And I think that to me is the difference between saying like I have pride and that's why Irish pride isn't, you know, isn't an issue or, you know, Greek pride or any of that because there's still that holding on to that original, where your family came from, that original heritage with the notion that you, you know, you still had to give something up. People of color and other marginalized communities, they don't have anything to give up. You can't give up blackness. You know, you can't give up because it's 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 embedded in your skin tone. When you see me, you see me as the black dude. I can look at all of you guys and be like, I don't know where you're from. You're just all like standard issue white guys to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's one. It's, We're from Target. I have to get to know you guys. I, I'm I'm from Walmart. <laughs> I have to be like I have to know you and learn you to know what your heritage is and what your background is. You can assume mine. But, like, what do you guys think about that? Like, do you think that there's something to be said for previous generations that have to kind of give up their cultures to be white? And then that's kind of what, for me, kind of explains why there we don't necessarily know what white culture is. It's because we've never had to define it. Yes, you could say that, you know, oh, well, it's rock and roll. Well, rock and roll, you know, was kind of... I think people of color, you know music, what I mean? Like Music and art, I think, can sometimes be tricky. Let me suggest this, and then I also welcome being checked on it, and I'm also going to review it, because I think the common thing for art is it always steals from other things and always builds on itself. Like, that's always what I've heard, that good artists, you always just borrow from other things, and there's only so many plot lines in the world. So there's kind of, um, if you look at all of the plot lines in every story, they say that it's between, like, 7 and 15 types of plot lines that just get represented in different ways and things like that so that's the thing that i've heard and that music always builds on itself and it just kind of grows and it and it morphs off of other types of music and other cultures and other events well now that i'm saying that now that i'm thinking out loud this is where i'm trying to stop and check and say obviously there's times when that happens in a wrong way like obviously obviously there's such a thing as theft um and i think what we also see is co-opting something and taking it and taking credit for something and removing the the cultural narrative behind it which is that like act of preservation and the act of pride in the face of when people are trying to make you no longer exist in whatever way that manifests so now I, i'm just trying to play with those ideas and say within art and music well, can, think, can that morphing off of one another still exist while also recognizing i think where it boils down to is that when you have these art forms it is, like you said, it, it wasn't just co-opted, but it was also, <clears throat> there was no credit given. You can adapt, you can uh, borrow a style, you can do these things as long as you make sure there's proper credit, but that wasn't done. It was a suppression and pushback and an amplification of someone else, and that's happened so much. Like you can still have it, you can still share these art forms, you can still share the plot lines, except you have to make sure that everyone gets the credit they're due. 
Well, and I think that especially when it comes to things like music, uh, music more generally than anything else, there is a signed idea, especially when you're when you have white people in, you know, black forms of music, R and B, you know, rap, jazz, for you know, all of for you know, in those forms, forms that are historically you know, and culturally significant for people of color. It's this idea of the reason that Eminem works in a way that, like, maybe another white rapper would not work is because Eminem, A, was just really good at it, you know? So you have to be really good. And B, he never did it in a way that made it seem like he wasn't, there wasn't reverence given to... The values behind it. The values it. behind it. Right. Whereas, you know, someone like a Justin Timberlake, for example, there always seemed like he was, he felt like, I deserve this. It's, this is, it's this like, is, I get to benefit from your struggles, but I'm not going to put any effort into it. Right. I don't have to do, because, you know, I'm he has that background. Guy. I don't, I don't. He's insulated from the community. First of all, I, I will never, ever, ever give Justin Timberlake anything other than disdain after what he did to Jan Jackson. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, but 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 even in a in a bigger, don't do it. Even in a bigger, this was a black woman. You guys had this situation, and the first time it was uncomfortable for you, you threw her under the bus. He didn't fight her. Yeah. And that is kind of the the running theme when it comes to you know art and music, and when you're dealing with you know white artists and black people and black performers, is this idea of I'm going to use you as long as it benefits me. But as soon as it doesn't benefit me anymore. Then I'm done, and you know I don't have any association. It's like a common theme. The same thing for, and I think this is segueing into oxtails. Uh, <laughs> I think this is going to make a big oxtail circle. That um, and it's not just oxtails, but just oxtails was the thing that, that brought it up. Talking so, about ahead. like gentrification and like hipsters are my people, but a a an amount of white hipsters, whether it be all or some, enough. Yeah, enough white hipsters moving into poorer neighborhoods because it's cool getting to have property and then suddenly it's worth more in their names, um, in their whiteness. There's another piece here. Well, then they change the, changes the culture of the neighborhood. And then what they tend to do is once they get into these neighborhoods, they immediately start using the police as a weapon. And yes, amidst self praise of look at, Look at me valuing impoverished places, right. and there's this kind of like fetish, right? By driving people out, and then the cycle repeats itself. So somewhere in there is this like fetishization of poverty, and they're getting off on this coolness image. And I know plenty of hipsters who are white hipsters, and they do plenty of good, and they are active in their communities, and they do great. And I think that's great. I know plenty of hipsters who are benefiting benefiting from an image, and because that's a trend and that's a style, it's becoming a trend to consume, and it's just becoming accessible. Uh, and you know, for, by all means, for for you guys to jump in to this conversation, but I also feel like, and to bring it to kind of the the cultural foods, the oxtails and things like that, those were things that were historically the scraps. And you know, when you're looking at like chicken wings <coughs> and you know uh, oxtails, uh, with them thinking of other foods, you know, ham hocks and, and turkey necks and all. And if you fuck up turkey necks, I swear to God, um, you can have. But like, there are these. But these foods that were that were scraps in like collard greens. The reason that these foods are such are staples in communities of color is because, you know, they were food the foods that white people did not want to eat. They were they were seen as beneath them. And so now you know we've got you know, pork belly is another one of those things that like like hipsters and other people love to eat now. But you know was previously seen as the the trash meat and the trash portions of these animals that people of color have taken and put their 
their stank on it, you know, and made them delicious. <laughs> and now they are being priced out of even the ability to make these items because, it you know, becomes, like I said, it went from being $16 for three under no circumstances. You it know, becomes like, trendy to consume for the suburban. Which right. Is gourmet. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, and it's, and I watched, I saw this thing and I, I posted it on the thread. Gordon Ramsay is going to be doing, in, in, it's in development now, a show where he goes into like, these cultures and learns their foods and then challenges them to see whether he can make their foods better than they can. And is, I said, is that a reaction, what Spencer? white devilry is this? You are know you, what I mean? It was definitely a reaction. Are like, you bracing oh, yourself? No. <laughs> like, oh, no. It, it, it's the whole thing. Was like, I, it's like, I wouldn't want to watch them. Like, first of all, it's like you're going in there. You have the full weight of your organization, your company, your corporation, your tools, your, your education, everything. And you're going against people that don't that are not going to have that. Right. It's like a high school soccer team going against an English Premier League soccer team and going, okay, well, we're going to see if we can play like they can. It's like, but that does that's not the same thing, right? And there's no winner with that because you know who's judging this competition? No, that's what I was going to say. Is is then you you also throw in the fact that they'll handpick judges who look for the same things that he do. I mean. I, if you've ever watched Chopped or stuff like that, they make a big deal out of like presentation and how pretty the plate looks. I don't give a rip about any of that. I would do horrible on that show because I've never once in my life considered plating other than don't stack it all Does together. Does it physically fit? Right. Yeah, like yeah, can, can I, yeah, you know. I'm and you know, but he I, undoubtedly he's not. It's not going to be like he's going to go down to the quick shop and get like you know, three dudes buying, you know, Newports and be like, hey, you guys come decide which of this tastes better. <laughs> right. It's going to be fellow executive chefs from the new, somewhere. The Newport committee. Yeah, who are going to value different things right. than, than he does. And, and look, I mean, Alex Gornichelli may smoke Newports too. I don't know. And She's no, a celebrity chef, by the way. But, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, no, you're going to have that going, you know. Hopefully the, that's, that's like a way to insert into, I guess, mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream culture. Like a way to educate and maybe a way to tell history and a way to look at those ugly point, points of history for people who are already in a position that wouldn't otherwise go actively seek those out. So I'm going to go like full silver lining. Is this going to be something that but the But we already got that with for? Anthony Bourdain parts unknown. Yeah. That was yeah. what that see, was. And see, it's great. There's some definitely but, weird stuff that you're just like, that but we, is, what, but what we don't need is the food that no, but, uh, tell me how to make my food. Yeah. Again, there's, there's a reverence there when Bourdain would go in and try to learn right. the history behind it. And there, there was a willingness to, in some ways, assimilate to this other culture and try right. to embed yourself in this other culture that is rather the, than yeah. demand that they assimilate to us. And, right, and, it's, That's it's, exactly, and it was a, exactly. it was a, it was a commentary on this person, and these are the the things. And like, if if you've never watched it, I mean, this is the listeners like watching some of the some of the episode on South Africa is absolutely amazing. You know, because he doesn't just talk about the food. He's talking about the culture and talking about apartheid and talking about all of these, the, you know, and how the apartheid affected the food, which affected the rest of the culture and all of why they have like these restaurants that are like literally inside people's houses in South Africa and going to them and seeing the food. Like, it's just so amazing. And I don't think that we're going to get that same thing from yeah, I Gordon Ramsay. Oh, no, Gordon, Gordon Ramsay's the hipster moving into the house and they yeah. call the police yeah. on his neighbors. Right. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> and it's, so for me, yeah. like, I read when I read this, I was I was like, this is gonna be terrible. Terrible. One thing that I always try to think about is how like where are avenues to have those Anthony Bourdain conversations, like within structures that are otherwise designed to not enable that. So right. like within 
within American television. Um, that's something that came through and that's really great. And so I'm just trying to think of where are the other forms of, of like art or television or music or things like that to have the opportunity to tell those stories. And I know there's the idea of you can't dismantle the master's house with the mentor's, to- mentor's tools and stepping away from the ways of methods of outreach um, and the, the practices of consumerism and the practices of whiteness to have other things to do. But I, I still can't help but think like within these structures, what can exist um, what can be done to move it in a new direction. And so that's where I'm always like, if I, when I hear, oh my God, this is going to be awful, expect it to be awful. But part of me still hopes, oh, is this something that maybe he's competing within that particular market and he's, he'll attempt to do the same thing because they want to compete for those viewers. And then that's a second story that's told of this. But I think his, I can't his, picture him the issue that. that I have with, with that is like, he will, if you ever watch, and you said you don't, but if you ever watch like any of his shows, he always takes, talks about taking these foods and elevating them. Mm. As if the foods themselves... It, it, it goes back to that notion yeah. of white superiority. Right, the foods themselves are not good enough to stand on their own. He has to go in there and somehow figure out a way to make them better. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, to, to whitewash them, essentially. Yeah. This and is I, good, but let's see what a white man can right. do with this. Right, and that's, it, it's, it's, that's what that would be. Yeah. Yeah. You never see Gordon Ramsay put himself down. He's, not, yeah. he's always on it's top. Always on top superior. Yeah. Whereas Anthony Bourdain, it was, you know, there were things that could happen that were not exactly like he wasn't, really in, he wasn't in the position of power. Right. And a lot of times yeah. he well, recognized it, his own mess. Yeah. Correct. And, and it wasn't, it, the show wasn't structured as a competition where he was trying to beat anyone else and, and therefore elevate himself. Because really what he's doing is elevating himself. It has nothing right. to do with I, the food or anything else. And now that it, you mention that, it's I know about a power about dynamic. Gordon Ramsay, that I, I would guess that that's his appeal because he never gets put down. He's never vulnerable. He never has to look at anything bad that he's done. And I think think that's an element of whiteness is it like, is. we never have to stop to confront our uglier history if we don't want to. Like, that's a choice that we it's, make because our structure is made up that way. way past its prime. So I mean, let's, let's yeah. for as a final question, before we kind of get into some final thoughts, you made a comment that I thought was really interesting, and that was that you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. I personally think that the only way that you can dismantle the master's house is with the master's tools, because those are the only tools that exist in the mainstream. Just to Go s- ahead. And, and, and I feel like that's even more true now to a degree, because the proliferation of, of media and outlets and the internet and things like that allow you to be very insulated if you want to be, um, and, and there's no way to break through to some of those people as you that, as that get gets continued, as that it continues to get more and more fragmented though, um, you've got to find mainstream ways to, to approach right. it. There are gatekeepers, you know, and, and there are this idea that like you can't get past a certain point without the approval of certain people. How, you know, what would be the master's tools? I mean, I, I know like using thing. media, using you know, it's almost this idea of like we. Uh, I, I would say it, I would say edu- the school system, education, right. um, I, you know, uh, finance, the financial industry, healthcare. Um, I, I think you know, I mean I mean the, the things that dominate our lives and have historically been dominated by a, a, I think, a factor of because I've heard this quote before and I've thought a lot about it and I've always thought that it was on the less tangible tools yeah. more of the the philosophical and daily practices like you you can't try you can't go in and try to dismantle the dominant culture by 
embracing their way of dominance by doing exactly what they're doing. But right. I think because if you do that, they'll take it over. Like, oh, we can do this too. Then you're playing within their rules, and that's that's yeah. The analogy that I always draw to that is like an abusive relationship. I hate to draw all analogies to abusive relationships, but I mean it, the, the relationship between I mean it's with whiteness is an abusive relationship. abusive impression. Like, oh, yeah. It's not yeah. like they're friends. Um, they know each other really well. For somebody who's in a, an, an abusive relationship, let's say there's an argument that goes on. The person who is the abuser, assuming that there's only one abuser in this situation, the person who's the abuser is going to create the rules as they go is going to set the rules with each different conversation and if you engage that person in that conversation by default you're consenting to their rules by default you're going to lose and so yeah and then and if if you don't then they'll just move the goalpost right right that's where yeah so those things i think that's where i was thinking the same terms for the intangible tools are those are the narratives that are tricky to catch on to. And it's not just their fallacies. Yes, they're fallacies. But I don't. I think it's not just the logical component of it. It's the narrative component to it. It's the, the part that makes it believable. It's the part that strings you along. It's the part that tells you what get what's worth attention, what gets worth, and where there's value. So I, I think that the tools in that sense are playing the same game that they're playing. So And yes, I would agree that, that media and, and healthcare and education, those are for sure tools. But I think there's another layer of it, too. Of doing that. The other thing I was going to say on that note was one reaction that I had to that idea of uh, master's tools, master's house, is inserting the word in there only. So instead of just saying you can't dismantle the master's house using the master master's tools, one thing in there was you can't dismantle the master's house only using the master's tool. And I think the other component of that that I've seen come from that conversation and that idea is this kind of separatist movement. Not like political separatist is not what we're talking about necessarily what i'm talking about is like those culture centers that you don't have to play within mainstream hollywood yes that's going to be a place no that's not just going to disappear because you don't partake in it but there is value and worth to having your own centers and having your own culture centers and defining one's own group like that but i think it i think it it, it bears saying uh and one of the reasons why i wanted to do this episode to begin with was this idea that like you can't dismantle whiteness without white people i would agree that at some point, exactly what you said, talking about gatekeepers and people right. who are holding the keys, you're going to have to get in that space it, at some point. And I, I've had the similar argument with gayness and straightness and what? queerness and straightness. Of At some point, if there's groups of people who are being silenced and pushed out, there's going to have to be a point when you get back in there. We've, we know, we've had, we had this conversation right. about the dear white people and, right. you know, and stuff like that and how, in, in a weird way, and this is going to, this, this, just hold on for a second, but in a weird way... I actually I'm think holding. I'm here for this. I actually think Trump is doing a huge favor <sighs> in that respect because the reason I say that is because I've let go. he well okay well, I but, think but I know he's going with it. for the for the vast yeah. majority for say I, the way I always look at it is there's there's twenty to thirty percent of people that are on one fringe or the other and there there's forty to fifty percent of people in the middle who can be moved can be swayed okay and, and it's those forty to fifty percent of the, those people. That have lived a very comfortable life and have been waking up over the last couple of decades to treatment of of gays, uh, you know, the gay community, and and all of a sudden you see now that they've kind of awakened to this a little bit, and and now that maybe they actually have met a gay person and had a conversation and realized that they didn't get AIDS from their breath or something like that, all of a sudden you now see that like you know the the, the political tone has now changed too. To where, you know, we've seen a lot of significant right. change coming. I think that for those 40 to 50% of people who assumed that, hey, the civil rights movement was 50 years ago. Like, we're done with that, right? Like, life's beautiful for black people again. And I think that the ones that are paying attention, that, that paid attention to the, the police shootings and are starting to see, hey, you know what? Like, black people still are treated different and stuff like that. I think 
there was some movement there, but I think that this like kind of unmasking uh, of Charlottesville and right. of a, ma- a legitimate Nazi winning a Republican primary, um, not only in, in Illinois, but in Clay freaking County, Missouri. I, I think that that yeah, has that's... the potential to move that 40 to 50% in the middle to say, holy shit, something's very wrong here. And I think that you, it'll be interesting to see, that's why I'm interested to see the midterms and even more interested to see 2020, like how much pushback there is from people who may have not recognized that and thought, you know, I'm going to vote Trump because I believe, because of abortion and guns and I hate Hillary. But then are now looking at that and saying, Jason, what was your original question? I completely spaced <laughs> on it. I'm sorry. I don't remember. Because I, I, I remember thinking I wasn't really sure. No, I remember now. It was the, can you just, can you dismantle? The masses. Yeah, without the masses. white people involved. Yeah. And that one I'm not actually sure about. Because, I mean, at what point does that involvement keep things the same? At what point does that become the, hey, let's not rock the boat too much. And you have to say, no, we have to rock the boat. We have to make things uncomfortable because otherwise there is no change, which brings back to the comfort thing that you were talking about. And that is the case. They've lived, there's been a long period of time where they've, they've followed what they were told to do according to how to live by white culture. It's like, you must do these things. The fun part is that most of them are not actually succeeding. They're not Correct. living the life they wanted. They're not stress-free. They're not enjoying that. But some of them pretend to be because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Because they're and just that, waiting for it. Yeah, it's yeah, coming. It's coming in. It's coming in. But then all of a sudden they see all these movements and they're they're pissed about it because, well, you know, why do they want, why, why are they trying to get what I've been trying to chase after? Why can't they do what I did? And so there's that indignancy that comes in. I actually thought you were going with the whole thing of like we finally lifted the rock and, you know, all, oh crap, we have a huge roach infestation in the right, country. Yeah. It was worse than we thought. Let's go take care of that. Well, that's I, yeah. I that's that, I finally got around to that, but I think that, that that there was an unmasking that took place that I think people thought you know that like racism. Yeah, there, it's, there's still a problem, but it's not a big problem. It's in it's in tiny pockets. It's really confined to the south. It's not a problem where I live. It's not a problem if in I my yeah, neighborhood. If I, if I don't see it, then it's not yeah, a problem. yeah. yeah. See, so, no, which I think is also a product of whiteness. It is definitely. If, if sure. I don't see it, if, I'm, I will immediately cut, undercut what someone else tells well, tells me. Because if they because if I have to acknowledge it, then I have to acknowledge why it. Do, do hold not to that fantasy. Why yeah. do you yeah. think that? Why do you think that the response to the opioid epidemic has been so much more forceful? Because it's it's a suburban epidemic as opposed to poverty epidemic. That, right. You know that may or may not have been created by the FBI and CIA in the first place. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, moving on. Moving yeah, on. with that one, it was always just fun. I mean, we, stop doing albatross. it. Albatross. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. like no, Richard exactly. Nixon. Press secretary. And now, <laughs> and now is, they did it. It's fine. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and now it's you know now it's you know but when when it's opioids and when it's soccer moms that are that are dropping like flies because they're becoming heroin addicts, all of a sudden it's it's a national crisis Only that compassion. we must address. They need right. to be compassion treated nicely. Correct. Because we know that they are good, fundamentally good people. We assume they are. Whereas. They look like us and talk like us. Correct. Like Whereas us follow that, the culture line. Yeah, but that same benefit of the doubt is not granted line. to uh, you know to black communities. You know where well, they, of course they not, have because that, that's because when they abuse those drugs, well, that's because they're just lazy. They're, they're, it's a moral failing. It, it is. This is my tribe, and our tribe is the one that's dominant. And if you follow that line, that's fine. That's why there is an acceptance of people like Amarosa in the White House. Is because oh, you told the line. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean. I didn't mean. To, I didn't mean uh, to, yeah. Okay, Ben Carson, you feel better? Oh God, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
But it's that it's that line. Basically, if you don't follow, it, then everything you do, it is it's why there's been such a back, why there was such a backlash, why you had Stonewall to be a riot because there was not going to be an acceptance. It's but that's that's an interesting thing. Like you talked about rocking the boat, not rocking the boat too much, and, and not making. I think right now for me, there's always been this reluctance to make white people uncomfortable. Why? You know, with my just because the the the, the comment about oxtails. There was a moment of like. Should I post this? Because somebody might get really offended if I say it. Because I said the words white people. What are you afraid you know? of when that when that happens? Are you afraid they're going to try and find just you? Just because I, I've, had, I've had this idea, like, people are like, you're always playing the race card, or blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's just yeah. like, okay. I'm so tired. There's, like, there's that suggestion that you have an agenda as opposed to, like, or you're, like, have the experience and are strategically placed to call it. Like, it was 75% a joke. I mean, there was truth to it, because I was for real legit mad. Well, the best but, jokes have a kernel of truth. So. And so, you know, what, there was that moment of like, do I really want to invite this kind of conversation? Because I've had free people that I were really was really close with that because I've become a little bit more militant in my blackness over the last couple of years have kind of been like, I don't really like talking to you now because you... Are you really militant in your black... Or are you just calling some shit? I'm just calling some stuff. Because there's militant. Yeah. There's militancy. I... But I, I do not calling of shit. When, when when people ask me, like if someone were to ask me about you, I would not describe you as my militant black friend. <laughs> <laughs> when, okay, when you when you keep when you at least bring up things and you hold the fact line there, saying this is what's really going on, and you're afraid of that, and those people say, well, now I don't want to hang out with you because you bring it. They, the thing is, what they've never done is ask you more questions. Like, wait a minute, why right. do you feel that way? Right. What do I not know? And for a lot of white culture, and I. It's the, my ignorance is as good as your knowledge or better. I don't have to learn anymore. I don't yeah. have to, just, yeah. I don't have to learn all the time. Basically, they never don't ask questions. And one of the things I've noticed is if you ask questions, you find out more, all of a sudden, whatever sting that comes through with anybody that is contrary to your opinion, you find out why. Right. And that's not been asked. They don't ask questions. They don't ask Black Lives Matter, why is this going on? What is happening? No, it's just a complete dismissal. Because it, it's going against the narrative, and you don't yeah. want to learn. And, 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 and instead of trying to learn, the privilege of, of whiteness is that you can just reflexively, you know, say "fuck you," all lives matter, or "I back the blue." I, I have an answer or, for everything. Or whatever that. Right. Yeah. And that's why I mean, don't honest, challenge my omniscience. First of all, I would say that that no great societal change has ever come without intentionally making people uncomfortable to some degree. You have to decide how uncomfortable. You're willing, how, how much you're willing to push that, but other people, it's possible for you to support other people who are pushing it a little bit more than you uh, if you want to and you just don't feel comfortable doing it on yourself. But I think you have to push people out of their comfort zone. That's a good place for that conversation to go. I have a quite, I have this thing and I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, a friend of mine posted this on Facebook, uh, Jamie uh, Vega, and it was made by Kelly Carbani Woods, Amber Carnes, Jasmine Hines, and Melody Gross. Uh, it's called The Process of White Fragility When Confronting White Supremacy. The first stage is not the not all argument. You know, mm-hmm. it's not everyone. Not all men. Not all men, not all whites, not all this. The second stage is the questioning, which is why does everything have to be about race? Mm-hmm. Uh, the third stage is to neutralize it. We just all need to vibrate higher and love each other. Oh, God. And then there's the emotional outburst, uh, feeling attacked and blaming others for being divisive or using divisive language. Uh, the intellectual exemption, using their educational qualifications, credentials, their resume, throwing out those MLK quotes, uh, discrediting or invalidating others. Did you hear um, what Morgan Freeman said? Those, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the next thing, part of the stage is relational exemption. No he didn't. Uh, <laughs> 
Relational exemption, proximity to back to blackness slash economics. My spouse is black, my family, friends, I grew up poor. I saw a black person once. Yeah. Uh, then that need to be heard. So that's usually when they take the message offline. White explaining, justification, or an apology. Uh, and then finally, uh, extermination. Deny, lie, and delete all comments. Yep. And I thought that was really kind of a good way to end this. Because I think we're going to get a lot of that from this and it's the reason why i said i'm not going to say much i ended up saying quite a bit but uh i'm not going to say much this episode because i wanted you guys to be the person to have people to have the conversation about what whiteness is i expected that this was a lot calmer than i thought it was going to be i'm going to be honest with you i was expecting it to be well, a lot more. we white people generally get along so. <laughs> do you though? Do we? <laughs> no oh, speaking God. of which um do you want to end it on a uh on a white dad joke you know what? Sure, let's end it on a white. Well, before we end it, before we end it, is there it anybody? It. Is, yeah. it will end it. And <laughs> anything. I have two kids, so I had an, I have an endless array of these. Again, thank you for thank you to Pods by QPOC for uh, helping us out and getting the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. If you would like to donate to the podcast. Uh, we do have a Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash kccaffeine. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at kc underscore caffeine. And email us at kccaffeine at gmail.com uh, for with all of your thoughts, your questions, your angry tiki torch pictures <laughs> about whiteness. You can send it all to us and we will gladly accept it for... You, Spencer, we're going to talk about a little bit about your, your podcast. On... Oh, oh, yes. Uh, I'm actually working on an episode right now. It's going to be called uh, Autistics Can't Be Astronauts. So that's going to be a fun one that's coming up in the next uh, couple of days, actually. Nice. Uh, you can find that at uh, neurologic.libsyn.com, neurologicpodcast.gmail.com, or find us on Facebook at just Neurologic. should be a page, and find us there. Awesome. Um, you guys, don't. do you have anything you want to promote? No. No, no I'm good. Like, like love and <laughs> intentionality. World peace. And like... <laughs> and cheap oxtails. Cheap oxtails. <laughs> All right, so on that note, we're going to end this on a dad joke. Play us out, Tom. I've got, I've got two, so here we go. Oh, no. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> Skeleton walks into a bar, goes up to the bartender, says, I'd like a shot of whiskey and a mop. No? Okay. Uh, oh. okay. I got it. John, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Nobody's home. Dyslexic interrupting cow. He's going to say home. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you guys... See, I got you. Guys you. Just ruined yeah, the joke. Yeah, I got yeah. you. There we go. We ruined the joke. There we go. I wiped right. your joke. What, one baby step in the right direction. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I believe one. I allowed that to happen. How do you make a <laughs> tissue dance? Put a little boogie in. Thank you. That's the only one I know. When I first heard that, I cried laughing. I don't have <laughs> words for any of these things. Do you have what, a dad? What, what did the buffalo the... say when he sent his oldest son off to college? Oh, no. I, I know this one. Oh, I'm God. Say Bye, son. I'm done. Good night, y'all. <laughs> stay What's woke, folks. Shouldn't dirt. the white people say stay woke, folk for this one? You know no. what? Go ahead. No. <laughs> no, no. No, no. Probably not. I've already co-opted enough. We it's already fine. did our dad jokes. Yeah. Okay. yeah we're, we're... Stay woke, folks. <laughs>